What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. I've never been this nervous in my life. Greetings from Longtime No See the Podcast. Every week we'll be inviting two blindfolded comedians to answer a series of questions about their careers, lives, and opinions. Now, let's remove those blindfolds and start the show. Hi! <laughs> what would your opening line with your celebrity crush be? Loved you in Harry Potter. <laughs> Worst date you've been on. A man bit my neck mole off once. You did what? A man bit my neck mole off. Oh my god, Jack almost fell off his chair. <laughs> be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast. It's easy to hear your favorite artist on WFPK from wherever you are. Listen on your smart speaker, live stream from our website at WFPK.org from Louisville Public Media. It's was, it was like back to work and back to school, <laughs> you know. Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome to another edition of Kyle Meredith with It's the Interview Series presented by WFPK and WFPK.org, Consequence, and the Consequence Podcast Network. Thanks as always for making your way here, checking out the episode, checking out the series. Of course, I do hope you hit the subscribe button. Uh, I put out three new interviews every single week, new and every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. So it's a great way to keep up with your favorite artists and discover the new ones at all the usual spots. That includes Spotify and Apple Podcast, at NPR, WFPK.org, YouTube for the video versions, or anywhere you get your podcast from. You can subscribe to Kyle Meredith with uh, some of the recent guests I've had on the show include uh let's see here tommy stinson of the replacements adina menzel the hives barry manilow we had the director behind the movie landscape with invisible hand and uh, the director behind the uh, gal gadot movie heart of stone along with uh matthias schweikoffer and the filmmakers behind they clone tyrone also talked to madison beer and fosia bethany cosentino of best coast and we had our eighth hundredth episode special recently that had guests uh, Keanu Reeves and Arnold Schwarzenegger and Rob Lowe and Monica Bellucci, Suki Waterhouse and Janelle Monet and Josh Hami of Queens of the Stone Age. Just a few of the recent episodes and why you should subscribe to Kyle Meredith with. And that's me, Kyle Meredith. Today, I am so excited about this. Today, I'm talking with Jerry Harrison of the band Talking Heads. It's the 40th anniversary of the uh, film and live album, Stop Making Sense, 
which is coming back to theaters thanks to a new partnership with A24. So we're going to hear about the deluxe edition of the vinyl that was just released, uh, the legendary Jonathan Demme film uh, that not only just regular theaters, by the way, that's also an IMAX. Uh, we'll hear how they struck a deal with A24. Uh, we're also going to hear what it took to get the four members back on the same stage together. It's been, uh, well, I mean, the last time they performed together was Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in the early 2000s. They're not performing, or at least they're not performing yet, that I'm told, but there will be Q&A sessions set up around the release of the film. So that marks sort of a reunion. I want to hear the backstory on that, so we'll get that. We'll hear about the new... Dolby Atmos remixes of not only uh, this live record, but uh, what Jerry's been doing with uh, all of the Talking Heads albums. We also get to hear about why uh, the Talking Heads considered themselves one of the best bands in the world at their peak. Around the time they were making Stop Making Sense, how talking with the original members has been a healing process, and why it doesn't produce many artists any longer. We'll also hear about his upcoming projects, one which includes a show about the runarounds, which I believe is a spinoff of the Outer Banks. So all that and more, let's do this. We're talking Stop Making Sense. It's Kyle Meredith with Jerry Harrison of The Talking Heads. Hi, it's nice to be with you. God, what you've done, not just with The Talking Heads, but in your other musical incarnations beyond that, in the production work that you've done over the years, I mean, you are so woven into the uh, the threads of musical history, so it's quite the honor to have you on here. So first off, hi. <laughs> hi, hi, and, and thank you for all the compliments. It's uh, I've had the good fortune to, you know, what did they say? May you be blessed by living in interesting times, and I think that uh, I certainly was, and uh, I've been a part. I've been able to witness and sometimes be an important part of transitions, changes in technology that affected the way music was being made, changes in style, and um, even changes in the place that what music, what it means to people within the context of their lives. I think has changed dramatically, and uh, you know, it's you, it's. You can write it down and you can talk about it, but to, to live through it is 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 a, a very different thing. Yeah, that's, of course, that's been a lot of the conversation right now. You know, we talk about changing musical styles all the time, but the changing in technology, you know, only creeps up every so often. And yeah. and it's, it's, it's interesting to think back, you know, around the time when synthesizers and drum machines were coming in and people were worried that robots were making our music. Right. <laughs> robots control but at that time robots controlled by people sure and now we have robots <laughs> making their own music so yeah yeah, yeah that's got to be an uh it, i don't know it's got to be an interesting i mean i think everybody's got an opinion on this and I'm, even to some point maybe it's a tired conversation or or maybe we're on the cusp of really being in trouble depending on who you talk to but that i i think just taking the context of what you're talking about that's got to be an interesting point of view for yourself who has seen the whole scope of it I, the, to me, the most the mo the most fun time to me was I'm old enough that I remember sort of doing a recording session where it was sort of like the musicians are in that room, and then the technicians, uh, you know, it's, it's not how it was at Abbey Road wearing white lab coats, but they're in this room, and it's sort of like you're a circus act that's being watched and recorded. But you have nothing to do with that. No, 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 that no. This is for the 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 engineering technical professionals. 
it's sort of like, yeah, you're a great uh, race car driver, but get out of the pit. You don't know anything about like changing, uh, you know, the camshaft or anything like that. And and then I so it was an, the transition to when control rooms got bigger. And, and I would also say, as a producer, I learned from Eno this idea of thinking of the recording studio as uh, an instrument in itself and part of part of the uh, part of the process of making an album or making a sound was stuff that you did with your own instruments and maybe pedals and effects that you had built in out there, but also all the all of the ones that were available in the studio. And the early uh, ones that allowed you to, for instance, capture a little space and time, piece of music, and then replay it, trigger it back and things like that. Really exciting things happened. And sometimes it took you all day to do something that now you can do in five minutes, but it took you all day. And you were just so excited that you actually could now do something like that, that you could never have done before with just tape. Or, you know, or some of the ways that they did it with tape were pretty inexact. You could kind of do it. And uh, and of course, I think that they probably felt when tape came along, oh my God, look what we can do with tape that we couldn't do with, you know, cutting to wax cylinders and then to lacquers. Now we can splice it. I think some people say that Tom Dowd, who worked at Atlantic, is the first person who said, we can cut tape in the middle of a song and you won't know. Which is still amazing to me because I came up right after that. Like I, yeah. I'm a child of the 80s. Right. So for me, tape was, you know, collage. That's what it was, you know, recording collage. But I, I never, I never had the, um, the razor slices uh, across my jeans as I, you know, I hear about, yeah. and, and you know, and all that. That like that's still the art of that, which is absolutely a lost art at this point, is incredible to me. And it, and it was, you, you know, and I mean, I remember even, and this was. This must have been done analog that uh, I was doing sort of a, a alternate mix on the on the album Casual Gods with John Patoker for the song Bobby Don't Do It or Bobby. And the way he did it is he had ideas and he went to a part of the song and he then recorded it onto a two track and he kept it. And then we went to another part of the song. He did this and then he tried editing them together to see if his idea would work. Because there was no way to move things around to hear it in advance. You had to, you know, you got all your balances and you recorded it. And then you went and recorded this and say, like, what's this sound like when this happens at that point? And it was like, okay, that works. Let's go to the next one. And, you know, it was this assembly process that sort of first happened in someone's mind, was conceived. Then how do I make it work? I have to kind of remember things about the volumes of the drums, otherwise they're going to interfere. It's going to be very obvious, um, things like that. So, it, it, but it was so you know it was so fun to be like at a like you really felt you were at the cutting edge of that, or when the beginning of samplers happened. And you know, I made that record five minutes with Ronald Reagan's voice, and you know that was that you know bop, 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 you know this, this something that you could do that it would have been really you know they did shit like this at earcam with tape but it was super laborious you know and this so it, it sped that part up but not to the point that now it's just like you're all everything's within this and the plug it does as it's already done and 
And then, you know, sometimes then what happens, it's done, but it's not, it doesn't really sound the same. It's really not as good. But, you know, I, I do think that that's one of the big things now. It's like you have to, 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 to at least to have your own taste about what you think is good and bad when so many things can be fixed so easily. Then you have to kind of look really in, deeply into the piece of music to go, what, what is it about this that just doesn't work? Because all of these external things seem fine. In the in the past, the, the external things were usually like, well, I don't think this is a very good song, and the singer cat is singing out of tune, and his phrasing's terrible, and so it's pretty easy for me to tell, but I don't think this is going to work. But if all the tuning's fine and it's all been rephrased because you move things around by somebody, and now you're going like, well, that works, but I still don't think it's a very good song. But and you fix too much stuff, and of course, you lose. The happy accidents that you know are some of our favorite moments you know of any yeah, yeah that stuff i think that that's a a lesson that everybody who when they first get um like you know something like pro tools or any kind of these audio editing programs goes through a phase of almost making everything always perfect because they were always so frustrated with i always sing a little flat or i you know, I've always felt my drummer was slowing down here and there, and I, I got to fix that. And, you know, and then you get obsessed with it being perfect. And then, you you know, a year or two later, you're like, I'm bored with this now, you know. And so, like, learning to, to, to do just the right amount, I guess that's the art form. And we'll be right back right after this. Shout out to uh, Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Uh, I, I live in Kentucky, in the Midwest, and allergies, yeah, I suffer. When I say I suffer from allergies, I suffer from allergies. And around here, everyone I know deals with allergies to some degree. And for a long time, I thought it was just something that I would have to live with, which is a real problem um, for anything, but especially when you're a radio host. It affects my voice, it affects my mood, it affects everything. And I feel like I've tried every, I've tried all the medicines. Some of them work better than others, but there's there's never a perfect one out there, especially because some of them take forever to actually work and some of them don't work at all. And then there's Astapro, the fastest solution to nasal allergy symptoms. It's what I use now and it's definitely changed my life. Astapro is the first of its kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24 hour over the counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes while other allergy sprays take hours. Uh, Astapro is the first and only 24 hour steroid free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose and sneezing. With all the pollen in the air, with all the dust around the, the corners of the house, uh, even with uh, the allergies I have from my dog, Astapro has been the nasal spray that has helped me with all of my allergies. And it can help you too. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can Astapro and go today. A S T E P R O allergy.com. That's A S T E P R O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use as directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. 
Welcome back. It's Kyle Meredith with Jerry Harrison of the Talking Heads. And now, and I'll tie this to current day, although I'm sort of tying it to the far past too. Uh, now you're working with remixing what's the Talking Heads stuff in, in, in Dolby Atmos. Right. Which is its own new level that I haven't fully grasped yet because I, I, I don't know that I even have the proper... Mm-hmm you know, speakers, whatever, uh, system. Uh, talk about that a little bit, because I would love to hear what that means for what you're doing and how that's adding something new, what that's bringing out. Well, it is not incredibly different from when 5.1 came out, and uh, which was the idea of, which really wasn't all that different from Quad, which had come out many, many years earlier. But the idea of like having speakers behind you as well as in front of you is the beginning of this. Um, Dolby Atmos, of course, adds the ceiling and more speakers around you. Um, it was easy with 5.1. If you didn't have the speakers in the right place, sort of a hole could develop in it. And so by having more speakers, um, you, you, you can make sure that that doesn't happen. But... You also have to be very careful that if they're not placed right, like, you know, if a speaker's right, especially in a smaller room, if the speaker's like right there, your ear is right here, it could be, this speaker can just always seem too loud, you know, and it, it's it's somewhat also dependent on the size of the room, it can matter. Um, when we remixed all of the Talking Heads uh, studio albums for Atmos, we used the 5-1 mixes as our starting point, and then we expanded them and to for the extra for the extra speakers and because we knew that they had worked as not feeling like that they were new that they had special things about them they had added clarity the idea that in a song like the great curve where you have all these different melodies of the background vocals that you could by placing them in different places it could be sort of like charles ives having the two marching bands marching towards them in the middle of town. You had this, and that was totally cool. So, you know, we we expanded on that. We used the ceiling, but we didn't go, we didn't, we we also wanted it to relate back to the original stereo mix and not, and that you went like, oh my God, this just sounds way too different. You know, we we were we were trying to be careful that there was that um that connection back. And we also knew that those mixes were going to be largely listened to on headphones because Apple had embraced uh, this and Amazon Music and Tidal now have it. And so that's a, still a near field experience. And it has the it, it does not allow you to get right in front of you. So, you know, the easiest way for people to check it out is there are now these really good sound bars that, pe- that have been developed that find a way of throwing speakers off the ceiling and, and stuff like that so that it gives the semblance of, of sound coming from all around you. It's not the same as having a really great system with 13 speakers everywhere, but it's 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 remarkably works. I've always thought that, you know, I brought up that song, Bobby Don't Do It, which is a song about suicide. And it has these... Um, I have these sort of little buried things, which are sounds from a pig slaughterhouse that that my friend Frank Sarfini, who does sound effects, had recorded and he used in the in the movie Poltergeist. And 
they're horrifying sounds. And um, I thought about that trial of, of Judas Priest that someone went, went out and shot somebody because they had listened to Judas Priest for, I don't know, 10 hours straight with headphones. I think when you get to the point of really, like, really good Atmos, where, you know, you can't tell if, if it's in the music that someone's, like, scratching behind your head, you know, there's, like, that someone walked in the door, that that could be part of the music, or it could be in your real environment. The idea of you repeating that over and over again and putting you, yourself in a violent mental state or an altered mental state seems a lot more possible to me. That's wild. It's, it's wild how, because I, I know those moments that you're talking about, how it's like, I know that I'm hearing it here, but I feel it here and I feel it. Even like, what I was thinking, like Chad Blake, producer, you know, he used binaural recording a lot and uh, a few of his, you put them on and and the whole idea about, you know, you're supposed to feel like you're in the middle of the room. Yeah. And if you get it right, it's perfect. And then on the extreme side, uh, the new sphere in Vegas that U2 is going to be yeah. like, I'm really interested to hear it. Now that's more of a live experience, but to have that same sound quality wherever you are, yeah. you know, the things you can play around with is just incredible. And I'll, and I'll believe it that it's the same everywhere. I mean, we'll see. <laughs> uh, you know, they did that with love, but that was because they had speakers in every speak in every built into every chair, you know, and as a way to try to make it the same everywhere. I mean, it is amazing what they've done with speaker systems and having micro delays. You know, there's a club here at Sweetwater where they have ceilings in a, you know, they left the wood beams in the ceiling. So they have mounted little littler speakers coming back. And with, with um, microsecond delays, they can have them in alignment with the speakers on stage, which then means to get a certain loud sound level to the back of the room, you don't have to blast it up front because you have, it can be a reinforced, but, but reinforced in time. So, as well as you know, focused arrays, which are remarkable at how narrow they can focus. So the, the technology is really astonishing of what they can do and probably is getting, getting is going even more in that direction. But as, as far as surround goes in Atmos, it was it was it was really fun to do that. And you know, because I really had loved the 5.1 experience. And um Atmos, one of the interesting things about what Atmos does is that it has an in-between step that the way they describe it is slightly complicated. But what it does is it you mix to a space, this multi-dimensional space, which includes the ceiling and all around you. And then the Atmos system samples your system, tell you know, you tell it how many speakers you have, and it, you know, it sends pink noise to everything. And then it basically translates what you did into trying to optimize it for whatever the speaker system that you have available is. And that is really useful because, you know, we would, with 5.1, because it was channel specific, everything was sent to a channel, you could walk into someone's setup and going like, well, what, where's the center speaker? And, you know, because a lot of people would buy, have like really nice stereo speakers, and then they added some other things to have surround speakers and the center speaker, but they're not of the same quality or they're not even the same brand. And it it becomes like, so we when we were doing the 5.1, we compensated for that by 
using the idea of the what they call the the faux center that comes from stereo when you put equal sound in there. So our center was a mixture of the true center speaker, but also taking the left or the right and panning it so it would go in the center. So that if someone had an older system, they still would get the experience. Yeah, as the kid who just loved to sit right in front of the stereo speakers, you know, with the liner notes, like, and yeah, and we, and you know, so we, and we just did this for stop making sense of remixing it for theaters, and then we had to do the conversion to to for IMAX, which is a little bit different than Atmos. Um, unfortunately, I was in Europe when that happened, but I talked to everybody and took a little. It wasn't. It didn't go on. You know, everyone thinks it's an automatic process. You just let a computer do it. But no, you have to make some changes. And so they made the changes. And, and I'm really excited to that when that's going to come out. It's uh, and I think it's really exciting to. I think what will happen is that you'll now be able to go like what. Well, and this is one of the things in multi-channel audio is you can hear this, the whole thing, which is the mix that you're used to hearing. But if you want to, you can kind of go and concentrate on what's Bernie Worrell playing right now or what's Tina Tina the bass is what they were like what's that guitar part it's like oh I can actually pick it out now it's like it's there over there so if I think about over there and try and reject some of this other stuff I can actually hear it a little more clearly so it's it's, it's really cool and it also means it's easy to want to listen to it twice or three times and focus your attention in different places well, when you're looking to, you know, run the uh, the box office up the theater, that's that's the best thing right there. <laughs> <'Cause> <laughs> exactly. see multiple times. And that's, you know, by the way, so this is being put out, you know, it's A24, which is one of the coolest in the game right now. A lot of my favorite movies coming from them to pick this up for the theatrical run. How did that relationship come about? Because that's not something I think anyone would have instantly expected. Well, what happened is the the deal that we had had with Palm Pictures was coming to an end, and they made an offer which we felt was inadequate. And then it's like, well, you know, maybe they're still not even the right company. And you know, the, I, I think that there's a truth that often happens is that even a company that's been very good to you, if you have a very long relationship with them, there are times where everybody does things sort of on automatic pilot. And so the introduction of 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 a fresh relationship, fresh blood, as they say, you know, is um, you know an example would be Bonnie Raitt. Now it's maybe one of her best albums, but when she did Nick of Time, it was when she had moved over to Capital from Warner Brothers, and she was at a really good point in her life. She, you know, it's a great song, but they also immediately spent more money on it than I think Warner Brothers would have because they wanted to prove to Bonnie she'd made the right choice by moving. And they had invested in giving her a bigger advance than she would have gotten to extend. So that the freshness of it helped make it, a, a, this was the right decision. So I think that for, for Stop Making Sense, having a new studio um you know we were you know we've there were a couple of there were a couple of other ones that were in contention and we chose a24 we thought they would would be the best partners for us and it's been great working with them and i think it's i don't think we would have been able to have gone as in deep of like okay we're rescanning it at 4k and we're gonna spend the money on doing this remix and stuff like that i mean i was 
I was the one who put that together and found ways to say uh, the budget was really, it really didn't cover what we needed to do, but I found ways to make it work. And I think that it, I think people are going to be like, I love this film, but now it's like, I really feel like I'm seeing it, it with fresh eyes and with fresh ears again. And I think that's going to be a, a great experience. And, you know, I, I think that when we, put out let's say a blu-ray version we my intention is that we include sort of all the, the older mixes and stuff like that and people can go back and i can talk through you know what the technology changes were and things like that and how but there's you know people are still gonna probably go like i kind of miss this or i miss there's always someone who misses something from the past i miss the grain i missed it when it was blurrier because i kind of you know what whatever that is that's embedded i get i have old vhs tapes rarely do i pull them out but every now and then you know that nostalgia seeps in or just that connection that you did have to to whatever that what yeah i get that i get that yeah. you, the trailer for that by the way was enough to completely <laughs> blow me away at the beginning i mean the trailer i've talked about stop making sense was put together so well like yes i need to see this and it just reminded me of everything that i did love about that album, about that film, about, you know, this, what we all loved about the Talking Heads, you know, of course we could go on about that for a while, but but even knowing what you guys were doing live, I mean, and I know this is not new ground, but, but did you guys feel like you were an island? Because looking at that even now in hindsight, it's like, nobody was doing that. Nobody. We, we, we felt we were um, at the forefront of something. You know, whether it was, you know, whether it would be just what we were doing, but we were really excited about what we were doing. We felt we were as good a band as there was in the world. And our performances were really exciting. Great players, great interaction and respect on stage. The visuals were one of the things I think that are that are so great about them is most of the effects that you see being used could have been done in like the 1930s. You know, it's a guy walking around with a light or it's a, like a slide projection. There was nothing, you know, that was right at the time that Versal, I think they're called Versalites, you know, that very, very lights, the ones that would aim, you know, that Phil Collins have invested in, which were a really cool thing. But had we focused on that happening, it would have dated the movie like, Oh, right. That's when that came out. But because of the things that that really David um, came up with, they there's a timelessness nature about them. They, you know, you feel like that someone could do the same thing in summer stock, so to speak. And, you know, it just was cleverly enough done that, you know, you didn't need fancy technology. You just needed a good imagination. And we'll be right back right after this. Welcome back. It's Kyle Meredith with Jerry Harrison of the Talking Heads. We see some of those drawings. I know that was in the, the even the original booklet and everything about this is the concept for the stage. And then you see the picture and it's like, it's almost identical. Yeah. Like, like, do you all, do you remember, do you remember you all dreaming it up and the conversations? Because obviously a lot of work went into that. Yeah, I remember, I remember some of them. And you know, the rehearsals were a little brutal because David was in the double position of having to run out front to see what it looked like and then play his parts. And and I also think that it was um, 
you know, I you know, I just did this tour with Adrian Ballou about basically based on the first version of the of the big band, which was a band that I had hired, and we had been uh there's a show from Rome that's on uh YouTube that was sort of the blueprint of like we wanted to capture that. And so that it's interesting watching Stop Making Sense, which I did, you know, I went right into working in Stop Making Sense right after like doing a month of touring. And it's like Wow, you know, it amazed me. Stop making sense. Only has two songs from from Remain in Light in it, which is like, which is Cross Eyed and Painless and Once in a Lifetime. It's like, I you know what a lot of people consider our most important album is only two songs from it. But also there was a a looseness and a sort of musical as well as freedom in the earlier one because you didn't shut the lights down on people so that you could see the see the uh projections from behind so you know it's not making sense what it was is it you know the, the band be, it became like a entirely conceived for the theater show and before it had, you know it had started as how do we play this complicated music we need a bunch of other musicians how do we arrange them on stage how do we actually be able to hear each other and Okay, here are the parts, but there's a certain amount of freedom to go where we are. And there's free, I mean, there was freedom still in Stop Making Sense of the solos and various other places, but it was it was more blocked out, you know, uh, you know, yeah, blocking in, in the sense of what happens in staging, where do you, you know, this, you're in front of this person, you're here, you know. You're... Again, in hindsight, it looks like you guys were always on that track. To, to have gotten to the point where, now we're going to do something that's so theatrical that's that's meant for the stage you know it seems like you were always sort of building to that but at the same time you know i think about while you only have two songs from remain alight you know of course you have the newer songs on there too uh, what burning down the house at the time had become the biggest hit of your all's right. career so you here you have this one thing that's completely art house and at the same time you're running the pop charts. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and that works, you know, and, and everyone went, yeah, all right, buy the ticket. We're all a part of this. Like, so rare does that happen. I think of um, I think of Beyonce's Lemonade mm-hmm. as one of the great moments in the past 10 years where that, you know, that it has lined up like that or something. And are like even, I don't know, because when you're in the middle of it, it's probably just work. But do you remember being able to grasp that odd contradiction of what was happening in, in your own personal zeitgeist? Well, I would say that when I said that, I thought that we were like one of the best bands in the world at that moment. That's partially why, because I knew that we had also, we had penetrated the consciousness of the world with having songs on the radio or songs in movies. And we were known well enough. We were playing bigger places. We you know, we were consequential, you know, you know, I remember one playing Forest Hills and Madonna and, and uh, Mick Jagger were like five feet away from me in the wings, you know, and that didn't happen four years earlier than that. And, and to a degree, of course, they're coming to check it out to go like, is there something I can steal for my show? Sure. <laughs> <know>? Which they did. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but it is, it, I mean, what, what a great testament it is. And, and of course, you all are all over the news right now. I know you know that part. Yeah. Uh, you announced this first off, and everyone's like, cool, yay, new version, theater. And then, of course, it comes along. It's like, and uh, and by the way, 
all four of them were getting back together on a stage to talk for an interview. And and here you are at the top of the press cycle once again. I mean, it's, you know. It's amazing, yeah. And it's, going, it's I think it's coming out after Toronto. We're going to New York and L.A. for openings. But then I think it's literally going to be in 200 IMAX theaters in the United States and 500 around the world. I mean, it's mind-blowing, really. And also, what is it going to be like in IMAX? You know, how, you know, it's like everyone's going to be, look at that pimple. <laughs> and you guys are following Oppenheimer in the IMAX. That's 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 right. That's, that's right. Like yeah. Oppenheimer to it's not making sense. What did it take to make this? It, I don't know if you call it, I don't know if you call it a reunion. The four of you guys are together for the first time in public for a long time. Yeah. Was that easy? What did that take? <laughs> You know, the first thing was we had started with the businesses that we own the film together. We have to work together to make a decision. Is A24 the right right uh, distributor for us, the right partner for us? So we had to have conversations about that. Um, and, you know, this is something we did together. Then it's like, well, they, then A24 is going like, here's the offer, which, and we're going to get really behind this if you help us. And so it was sort of like, you know, there was like, obviously, you know, we, we, we need to work together to make this a success. And, but it's also, I, so it actually, I think it's been a, a somewhat of a healing experience for everybody. It's like, yeah, we, we actually can work together and do this. And this is something we're all proud of. Um, the conflicts that have been, that people have spent a lot of time talking about, there still can be looked up. You can. It's not like they. It's not like the feelings that made people say various things are are totally gone or anything like that. But it's sort of like they've been voiced. Do you need to voice things like that over and over again? I mean, I made my point. If you're interested in it, you know, for Chris, read my book or read this interview or you know, uh, you know, David. I think has had. The success of American Utopia, the fact that he now has Here Lies Love on Broadway, has he's the man of the moment. I mean, he's been working for really hard for 30 years, you know, since the talking heads or whatever it is, even more. And he's had, you know, some of it had to do with that when he he did that, that tour where he did the song, I think he called it the songs of David Byrne and Brian Eno. Of course, I was like a co-writer of about a third or a half of the songs, but but he and Nino had just done a record, so the idea of the title was fine. And the you know suddenly more people were coming to his show, and he was having more success. He was having fun. He had he could do he experiment with more things because he could have a bigger budget, you know. And then that sort of culminated in American Utopia, and then. You know, now he's had this exciting thing of reviving Here Lies Love that had been at the Public Theater, the National Gallery, uh, or National Theater in, in London, uh, on Broadway. And, you know, so I think he he also has, that's been a, given him new confidence, but also given him like, let, you know, let bygones be bygones, because why, why waste our time? Uh, these petty complaints from the past. And I don't need to prove anything like that because I've now, I have proved it. And, you know, for myself, who 
really tried to stay away from any conflicts like this. Um, my, you know, as you know, I've ended up branching out. I've, I've produced bands for a long time. I've started companies. I've done, I've just tried to keep my mind interested. You know, it's, it was really, it's really been great to do this tour with Adrian. I haven't been on a tour in 26 years. It was daunting. Uh, trying to get my chops back. One of the things that I, I see is I'm watching Stop Making Sense and I'll, I'm watching myself play a part play now and it's like, it's like, I feel like I'm moving as fast as I can to make the changes and get back and have my hand in the right place. And I'm using different instruments, so maybe it's a little more harder, but it's like, I see myself there and it's almost like I'm talking to Bernie and I'm just doing it automatically. It's like, you know, well, youth, youth and playing, you know, having been a touring musician for 10 years helps. <laughs> yeah. I know those, that those videos, like my, my, my relation to that is on so much more of a smaller scale, but you know, 20 some odd years ago when I did play with a group of friends and I see those videos and I go, I couldn't play that now. I mean, not without a ton of practice. I don't know how I did that. And, and I also know the feeling of, <clears throat> I have no desire to ever play with some of those people again. So, you know, to be part of a group that in one sense is so parts of the popular conscious and, and ingrained in people's, you know, nostalgia and, and favorite music and favorite arts. And you know, that, that question that always persisted through the years about reunions was so much tied to someone's own nostalgia of wanting to get back to a spot anyway, you know, which is, it's a rough thing, I think for any career musician to, to walk that line. But as you say, to get to a point where, what does it mean right now? What does all this mean right now? You know, to, to be able to work together again. What a relief, I guess it is for us to see some version. Yeah. Of I, and it's, it's really nice for us. I mean, I, I'll be, it's, it, you know, uh, it's, uh, it's going to be really, it will be interesting to be in Toronto and in New York and, and uh, LA and sort of doing these, these, some, I think someone's going to be interviewing each one of us and um, at, at the, simultaneously. And, I think it'll be, you know, I hope it's that everyone goes like, wow, that was fun. And it was really nice to see you. And it's nice to get caught up and to what else is going on in your life. You know, you know, I, I'm, you know, I, 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 I keep in touch with everybody. I mean, not religiously or anything like that, but like, you know, usually see everybody at least once a year you now. So how are, um how are uh, Chris and Tina? I know they'd had the accident last year. I mean, is it, it, I mentioned everybody's better for Tina. Tina it was harder for Tina because uh, she had, uh, I think she had a broken sternum from the uh, from the airbag, and that that's a um, you know I've had broken ribs. It's like you you know you you uh, unless you put pins in or something like that, you could do that, but you can't. It's not like you can put it in a cast or anything like that because you got to breathe. I mean, they used to like wrap people, you know, and then they'd get pneumonia. And so, uh, I, I, you know, I think she's, I actually think she's still in the process of recovering from that, but they've largely recovered. You know, I, they came to Adrian and my show in New Haven. So I saw them, them and we spent the night at their house. My wife and I did because they live nearby and um, they seemed fine. You know, it's great to hear. There really is. I know we were all concerned when that happened. So, yeah. So, well, I'm looking forward to, of course, seeing that, interview that reunion i'm way looking forward to seeing this film 
And then what do you did? Are you do? I mean, you've talked about it. You you keep yourself busy. Yeah. Are, are there other projects that you've got going on right now? Are you still producing? Or you have the other businesses? Well, then you know, I haven't produced anything. The last thing I produced was La Butcherettes, which I really loved. I uh, loved working with them, and I think Terry is just an amazing talent. And I've and I've I've worked on this. There's a young band that's sort of been put together that they may 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 include in being like a t- almost like a new version of the Monkees, you know, but a a, a band about a you know it's gonna be like a uh, they're called the Runarounds, and the the director who does Outer Banks for it's about um, you know a, people meeting and forming a band and then them growing as a band and them living together, then having other jobs. They have girlfriends, you know, so it becomes, uh, it's like a, I don't know if sitcom's the right word, but a, a serial TV show about the growth of a young musicians and forming and becoming a band and then them growing as a band. So I, I've worked on music with them. Um, but I have, a, I had a company that was about, doing fintech about ra- helping young healthcare companies uh, raise money that was called Red Crow that we sold to Alira Health, a, a larger healthcare company last spring, or, or a year ago last spring. And then I have a company about uh, that I co-founded that's uh, doing the first sort of innovative new thing about trying to deal with the problem of snake bites. And... Um, I've been heavily involved with that, and it's been 11 years. We were in just getting results back from our first clinical trials. It's a repurposed chemical, so we already knew about safety data from it. It's designed to be that you could that you get it early, so that it could help get at the first and get you to the hospital. Most people don't realize what a problem snakes are. Mosquitoes kill the most people because of all of the vectors of malaria, dengue fever. Chikovirus, um, all these different things that it, it can happen. Humans kill the next amount of people, and they may catch up to mosquitoes with the war in Ukraine. And snakes are next. Snakes are the third most deadly species to, for for us. They kill one hundred twenty five thousand people every year and uh, maim at least a half a million, if not more. And a lot of people never make it to the hospital and die on the side of the road and I'm not sure that they're counted. So we have something that literally you could have in your pocket and you would take it immediately. And at the very least, it would help you get to the hospital. Depending on what the the makeup of the toxins are in the particular antivenom, there are other, there are places where it might be all you need or the amount of antivenom you need will, will be much less. An antivenom can be extremely expensive. In the United States, the current level of, of, of what it costs to get antivenom is sixty to $100,000 per patient. Wow. And that doesn't include the ambulance, being in the hospital, or any of that, just the pharmaceutical. And the reason is, is that antivenom needs to be from the exact type of snake that you were bit by. And there's enough special, speciation change that if it was made from the Pacific Northwest uh, rattlesnake, by the time you got to Southern California, it might be only like 10% effective. So you end up getting 30 vials of antivenom at $3,000 a pop. And 
every one of those times, you're in danger of going into anaphylactic shock and various other, uh, because the way they make antivenom is they inject the uh, venom from the various snakes into horses or sheep, and they build up antibodies, and then they take their blood and filter it and try to have the antibodies that they're passing on to you. But there's other things about blood coming from the animals that you're getting that, that people have bad reactions to. So ours works on a particular toxin, which is called SPLA2, and that is uh, also kind of regulates your, your uh, overall immune response because uh, just as like you might die from shock when you had a car accident, not the actual wounds that you got, they w maybe they will kill you, but you die from the shock first. And so this this sort of is something that like it stops you from dying from the shock first, and that's why it helps you get to the hospital. So even in ones that where have a light have that the concentration of SPLA two in the sort of composition of toxins that make up that particular ant that particular venom is smaller than in others, it still can be helpful. It's just incredible to think about anything that's happening going wrong out in the world. Somebody's somebody's working on that. You know, and and sometimes the most surprising, like I was thinking, like you know, how many things Bing Crosby was tied into. You're saved by this. You got bit by a snake, and and you get this treatment, and you learn later on. It's like, oh yeah, Jerry from the Talking Heads, he helped out with that. <laughs> yeah, right. Like, yeah, that's incredible. No, that's incredible. Yeah, and I, you know, I was involved with a, a very high tech um, uh, microprocessor design company, and uh, we ended up. Uh, having gigantic patent infringement suits and, you know, finally, you know, settled for substantial amounts of money on those things. And that was fascinating. And then, you know, of course, I, I, I started GarageBand.com and I was involved with IOTA and GarageBand became iLike. And so, you know, it's partially because I moved to San Francisco as part of the startup community here. And I, I, it was, it, was, it was an exciting time. I wanted to be part of that, but it was, it was also you, you, um, you do something. You know, I did like ten or fifteen years of producing, kind of constantly, even to the neglect of my children. You know, it's like, you know, you a band comes, you're having to pay for them to be here, so that therefore you book the studio for six days a week. You only take one day off. You work eleven or twelve hours every day. You know, because that's how you get it done. You know, and I, you know, I always try, I had a philosophy of recording is to make sure that the band really could take the time to experiment and find, you know, realize that something won't work and that this is the, this is the right decision. And, you know, I also think that I, as a producer, I've had enough success with the Talking Heads and, you know, that I didn't feel that I had to make every album you know, you know, it was my album because I produced it, but it was not my, I didn't try to like insert always my style into it as a player. I mean, I, you know, I was perfectly happy to play on records and there were times where everyone else had tried, kind of exhausted with that thing. And I go like, well, I have a couple, I have these ideas that have ended up solving a problem. But the great thing about producing was that you, would, you know, you got to work on music that you probably wouldn't do yourself. You know, I produced a band that was it was not a strict country band, but it was very country influenced. Producing Kenny Wayne Shepherd, like a fantastic blues guitar, 
the amount I learned about the blues from Kenny and from Chris Layton and Tommy from Double Trouble, you know, I just, it's like, you know, I played blues music in high school and it's like, I go back and listen to some of the records, like mainly like a lot of English blues. And I go, this is really, it's, it's not really right. You know, I, you know, I, I just I thought it was fantastic. And then you listen to like, Oh, now I get, now I get, I, I understand a shuffle much better than I did back then. <laughs> you know, so that's the great thing about producing is you can push yourselves, but you have something to offer, but you're, you're learning from the people that you're working with too. And, and whatever it was in the water up there in, you know, Wisconsin with you and producers and you and, and Butch Vig and the garbage crew and everything else and, and everything that seems to come out of there. I'm like, what a magical place. And what, what was it you said in the other interview about three out of the five members of your high school band went on to career musicians and you yeah. had all of these other folks that went to your high school that also ended up in this like something a little magical about whatever there was really, happening there really, there. there really was yeah the guitar player was uh leonard cohen's guitar player for 25 years and played with don mclean and ian ian matthews and the bass player was johnny winters uh bass player for 10 years and then he had his own band but he also like toured with Bo Diddley and Mick Taylor and all of these other people actually the singer became the head of the American Institute of Architects and the drummer went and was a marine and fought in Vietnam fought in Vietnam amazingly and he uh, then came back and is a was a physician's assistant up in uh, Seattle so everyone, and then the Zucker brothers who made airplane were all part of our there was quite a uh, interesting art scene in that small suburban high school in a completely unlikely place that they that would come. Well, it seems like you've landed in those spots over and over through the yeah. years. And um, and again, I'll just say, uh, you know, Talking Heads and uh, in theaters, and of course the uh, the album is out now. I, I see that, so uh, I can't wait to see this again. And Jerry, uh, thank you so much for all that you've done for music, but especially for taking the time to talk about it today. This has been a real honor. Well, it's been my pleasure, and uh, I look forward to the next time we do it and meeting you in person. And my thanks to Jerry Harrison. Stop Making Sense 40th Anniversary. The uh, vinyl edition is already out with the film back in theaters this September. Thanks to you for checking out the episode. Again, I do hope you hit that subscribe button. You're going to get three brand new interviews sent to you every single week. A new one every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to keep you up to date on your favorite artists and discover the new ones. Again, it's Spotify and Apple Podcasts. You can grab us at NPR, uh, WFPK.org, YouTube for the video versions. Anywhere you get your podcast from, you can subscribe to Kyle Meredith with. And then after that, head over to WFPK.org. Try to do a show Monday through Friday, starting at 6 p.m. Eastern. It's four hours of classic tracks, the best in new music. We got uh, anniversary spins, bonus interviews, lots of music news as well. One of my uh, recent episodes featured the music of Morrissey, the Cranberries, the Cramps, Bully, Harry Nilsson, Tom Petty, Fleetwood Mac. We had Gary Clark Jr. and the Arctic Monkeys. Beck, Phoenix, Billie Holiday, The Who, Dylan, Middle Kids, My Morning Jacket, Jason Isbell, Soul to Soul, The Last Dinner Party, Modern English, Peter Gabriel, and my interview with Bruno Major. That's just an example of what you get every weeknight at 6 p.m. at wfpk.org. Consequence has your music and film news. 
You can also find me on the old social media spots. Uh, all the social medias, the address is always the same, at Kyle Meredith. So I do hope you like and follow along. And that does it for another edition. I'm Kyle Meredith. I'll see you next time. Consequence Podcast Network. You bet. Thanks. Bye-bye. It's easy to hear your favorite artist on WFPK from wherever you are. Listen on your smart speaker, live stream from our website at WFPK.org from Louisville Public Media. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.